Welcome to The Derivative by RCM Alternatives, where we dive into what makes alternative investments go, analyze the strategies of unique hedge fund managers, and chat with interesting guests from across the investment world. Hello there. Welcome back. Happy March, I guess. Feels like we just had New Year's Eve. So uh, yeah, I'm definitely losing it. And speaking of losing it daily, what's the deal with zero DTE options? Half the managers we talk to say it's noise. The other half think it could be a problem. Uh, so we're going to do a What the F episode next week with Professor Plum, a.k.a. Mike Green, and Craig Peterson of Tier 1 Alpha, who loves to look into the gamma stats. Uh, so we're going to dig into it. Go subscribe or follow or whatever the platform you're on calls it so the episode gets to you as soon as it drops. On to today's episode, where we spent way too little time talking about skiing, in my opinion. I threw on the Crested Butte hat and everything, but our guest stopped talking powder and started talking the Japanese real estate bubble, like he was on a financial podcast or something. Wait, yeah, it is that podcast. Anyway, it's none other than Meb Faber, and we're getting deep into the financial powder, talking U.S. bias, value, and why no big investors seem to have enough trend-following exposure. Send it! This episode is brought to you by RCM and its Guide to Trend-Following White Paper. We talk about why there aren't larger allocations to trend, why people get confused between managed futures and trend, and more in this episode. And the guide to trend is a great complement with managers, performance, and more. Go to rcmalts slash whitepapers to check it out. And now back to the show. All right. Hello, everybody. We've got Meb Faber of Cambria with us here today. Welcome, Meb. Hello, my friend. Been a while. Been a while. I was debating. I knew you were going to have a hat on, so I was going to either go my master's hat or my Crested Butte hat. But knowing you're a skier, I decided Crested Butte. And I mean, we're both wearing kind of black hoodies because it's cold here in L.A. Like, you know, it's it's Armageddon. It's been snowing. Um, we uh, we just got back from Mammoth where it was like, I don't even know, 10 feet of snow. It was so much snow. you It was like too much. You couldn't you didn't right. even know what to do, uh, which is a wonderful problem to have, of course. Um, I was just pulling that up, actually, on my uh, on the snow. Hundred and twenty three at Mount Waterman. Where is that? uh that's more like that's like closer closer to closer to la but the um yeah and 104 at mount baldy have you ever skied baldy no i don't even know if you can ski baldy but the uh the fun takeaway is that um you mammoth will now be open to probably july or whatever and i'm more of a i love spring skiing you know you can go out in a t-shirt or just like a little shell so maybe yeah. we'll do a uh uh, a macro meetup on the slopes of Mammoth or Tahoe or somewhere where you can ski through through the summer. I love it. <laughs> By the yeah. way, we'll we'll tie this into economics and some some investing lessons. Um, I talk a lot about skiing in Japan, and uh, they finally reopened for the first time in in years post COVID. They're still very COVID conscious. You know, the the most wonderful and polite people in the world, and. Um, they've always been kind of, you know, often mask wearing in general. But um, a fun fact for the listeners is that Japan has, despite being 120th the physical size of the United States, more ski resorts than any other country in the world. And it's like 550 or something. And they have some really? of the most amazing snow. And this is down from a peak of like 800 ski resorts uh, back during the boom times of the 80s. And so We've kind of come uh, a long way since then, since the Japanese peak bubble 
to where we are today, but Japanese stocks are, are finally cheap. So it's kind of um, a fun time to be talking about them. And in the Japan stock market, which is second largest in the world, is still like one seventh the size of the US, uh, which is still it's, it's sort of an astonishing uh, takeaway. What in their population? I don't know that off the top of my head. I don't know if you know it off the top of your head. One tenth of ours, or something. yeah, quite quite a bit less. But the um, but it's you know you you could go off into a thousand different directions on that just basic concept. You know, everyone on the equity long only side is a percentage of the world market cap. My favorite read of the year just came out, which is from Credit Suisse. It's called the Global Investment Returns Yearbook, and it's a spin out of my favorite book. Uh, which is called Triumph of the Optimist, but they update it yearly. Listeners, you can go download like the last 12 years on Credit Suisse's website, as long as Credit Suisse is still still around. But um, <laughs> but they look at 120 years of investing returns across uh, stock markets and you get all sorts of fun facts and they drop a lot of kind of haymaker conclusions that are non-consensus views in the investing world. We can come back to some of those, but one of which is they look at market cap weighting, for example, 1900, you know, and the US wasn't the largest market cap then, it was UK. US was like 14% or something, and it's now 60, uh, which just goes to show, you know, what a massive run. And, but the US was not the best performing equity market over the period. You know who was? Uh, Switzerland. Uh, close. Um, there's there was like a few, Switzerland, I think, actually has the lowest drawdown. If you look at a lot of historical studies, it's like never pays just to invest in one country, even if that country is the US. It's almost always better to invest in a diversified portfolio. Switzerland, I think, is one of the few that has a, a lower, and by lower, I mean still over half, but lower equity market drawdown. I think it's Australia. South Africa was in there, but they're you know so tiny that it's it's hard to to compare. So I think it was the Aussies, but we'll see how long. But now you got to tell me how. Australia was close to Switzerland, but yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, it is so always a bunch of Aussies skiing up in Japan, by the way. My favorite trip was the first time we went to Japan. We were in a tiny little town, um, and uh, the waitress spoke absolutely perfect English, but she spoke it with an Aussie accent. She said, Good day, and I was like, What? what? <laughs> she says, It's okay, just only, only a bunch of Aussies that come to this now, anyway. That's definitely on my list. So, when did you went for the first time? just this after COVID or you'd been before? No, we've been many times, probably 10 years going on now, been probably maybe five, six times, um, but kind of all over, uh, both on the mainland and up in Hokkaido. Yeah, I I tattooed a tree pretty hard this year. Um, Uh Our guide broke his femur uh, the the night before we arrived. So we were a little bit on our own this year, but um, it's a a spectacular place. Listeners, if you you need some... um, some beta, some info, hit me up and uh, I'll, we'll pass along some information. I need some. Um, yeah. I'll join you next time. Wait, so this is interesting to me. So do you think all that was a result of the bubble, of the real estate bubble, and they were developers buying up mountains, building out resorts? Yeah. So um, the long history listeners, if you look at market cap weighting, right, the thing about market cap weighting, and I ask my friends who are not involved in markets, usually I say, you know, they say, I invest, I put my portfolio in, you know, boring indexes and I say, okay, well, just, just so you know, like, so like the U S stock market, um, I said, do you know how that, how, how that's weighted? And they say, yeah, like it's the biggest companies. And I say, okay, well, biggest, when you say biggest, what do you mean? Well, they're like, well, you know, like Apple earnings and revenue and everything. I said, well, no, 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 no. 
market cap weighting, which is the market, is simply the price of the stock times shares outstanding. There's no tether to fundamentals whatsoever. So it is a trend following index, which is one reason it, it does great. You invest in companies that are going up and you invest more in those companies. And as the companies or stocks, excuse me, go down, you invest less and, until they go to zero, right? Your stop loss is essentially when it gets kicked out of the index because of size or, or zero. Um, and so that works decently over time. Now it has no tether to fundamentals and it's a weird position sizing algorithm, but it works in, uh, decently over time. The problem with that, and you look at these equity markets, is um, it gets really overexposed to booms and busts. And so because it has no tether to value, um, like a PE multiple or whatever it may be, Japan in the 80s, um, if you look at long-term PE ratios, uh, you know, they, they center around somewhere around 18, let's call it. And the US has been as high as 45, the peak of the dot-com bubble, and as low as five. By the way, in this recent cycle, it hit 40. I was kind of cheering for it to surpass, which I never thought I'd see in our lifetime again, the peak of the dot-com bubble, but we got close. Right around, I think, 30 today, uh, maybe high 20s. Anyway, Japan, which was the largest stock market in the world at the time, uh, hit a peak valuation of almost 100. So that's over twice the size of the U.S. bubble in the late 90s. And there's all sorts. You do research back in the 80s. I mean, it was a very real, every investment book came out was about how Japan, the, the business models, the companies were taking over the world. And they had a dual real estate and stock market bubble. The real estate was really the big kicker. Anyway, you can look at charts. And, and Wasn't that, that like the Imperial Palace was worth more than all of California or something? Is the Yeah. Is and the so, you know, you, you, the booms create distortions as do the busts. And so misallocation of capital, yada, yada. I mean, you look at the, the amount of golf courses, et cetera. Um, but it's a great illustration too. One, you shouldn't market cap weight because traditionally market cap weighting means you invest the most at the kind of worst times. So in the 80s, if you were buy and hold indexer, Vanguard, John Bogle, you would have put most of your money in the most expensive bubble in history. And like that just doesn't check the common sense box to me. So late 90s, you know, same thing with the US. The US, we don't have it as the most expensive country in the world. And it's not horrific now, but it's still expensive. Um, you put 60% of your money in that country versus the other odd 45 countries that are uh, quite a bit cheaper. So anyway, it's a suboptimal way to do stock market investing because of these um, boom periods. Despite that, it also creates a lot of psychological uh, differences in how you invest. And so I did a, a meetup in, in Tokyo uh, a few years ago uh, over some peers and um, a lot of local investors, some expats, but you know the, the culture of investing is different, right? Because you've had a stock market that's gone nowhere for decades, and this isn't some tiny economy. This is the second, you know, biggest economy yeah. in the world. I think now third, but um, but you know, buy and hold is isn't really a concept there where people are say, oh, I just you know, I just buy stocks and just let them go, right? Because right, it always goes up. Well, there's generations funny. of people who've had no or very little return on stocks. Now, I think it's changing. Um, now, I think it's a great opportunity, but uh, for many decades, and so right now is an interesting example because you can look at 45 developed emerging market stock markets around the world and look at just how many have gone nowhere for 10, 20, 
30 years. I mean, China being a great example, but there's tons of these. Um, you know, stocks for the long run really means you have to diversify across all stocks. And even then, it can go a long time. So a lot of the U.S. investors, I think, uh, we've hit the inflection point on, on the U.S. versus foreign uh, performance um, really in the last uh, couple of years. I think we'll look back and market as to uh, the maybe 2021, 2022 is, is the main inflection point for, for U.S. versus foreign, which historically has been a coin flip over time. Right. And January was rocking for foreign. What's the counter to that of like, hey, the whole U.S., right? It's not a military industrial complex. It's a investment industry industrial complex. And their whole being, sense of being from the Fed to the Treasury to the Congress, everyone is incented to make the stock market go up versus other countries where they might not have that uh, machinations, right? They might not have all that stuff to make the stock market go up. So could you take yeah. the other side of that and say like, yeah, the so US is better because of all the stuff that we push and maybe maybe that just creates a bigger bubble that will deflate in a bigger way down the line but right in so the short we, um, term you can argue that that's why it exists not surprising but we have a lot to say on this topic um <laughs> we, we have an old blog post called the case for global investing that i think does a good job you know hitting some of the main rebuttals about putting all your money in u.s stocks so the, so u.s is a percentage of the world 60 percent u.s 40 percent rest of the world but the average american puts in well over 80%, you know, and so um, you know, we call that home country bias. It happens all over the world. Our Japanese friends do it, our Aussie friends do it, on and on, our UK friends do it. And they put all their money in their own stock market, Chinese, Russians. And the funny thing is you ask everyone else around the world, hey, it was a good idea to put all your money in your, your own market. And our Greek friends would say, are you crazy? You know, <laughs> Brazil, Russia, on and on, even UK, Germany. I mean, those markets have really struggled. Um, it's just, so there's two parts to it. There's a, some amazing hindsight bias, right? Like we look back, the U S was the most successful, not only, uh, country economy, stock market really over the 20th century. Okay. So we look back and we say, okay, um, amazing. However, um, so excluding that you say, look, let's say you love USA brand more than anything in the world, rule of law, military on and on. That's a good reason to put seven times as much in the U.S. as any other country, right? Doesn't yeah. mean you should put all of it. And in particular, here's the interesting part. The world has changed in the last 30 years. It's much more globalized. You have companies and stocks that may be domiciled in the U.S. that have no U.S. revenue. You can have com com uh, companies based in the U.K. that just happen to be in the U.K., but they get all their revenue from China or the U.S. or whatever, right? So the, the borders are becoming increasingly meaningless. Mm -hmm. And so then people say, ah, Meb, that's my reason. I invest right, all my money sense. in the US because I'm diversified. 40% of my, yeah. my revenue is from abroad. And I say, correct. That is the lowest amount of any foreign, uh, of any developed market of, of them all. So the other countries have even higher percentages of revenue from abroad. And if you're mm -hmm. living in a world where the revenue is sort of cross-pollinated, um, then why would you pick the one spot that has the highest valuations? You wouldn't. If you consider a world of globalization, you would pick the spots that have the lowest valuations. And so just for, again, reference, US is what's called 29, 10-year PE ratio. 
uh, foreign developed is in the high teens, foreign emerging is, is in the mid low teens. So there's much more opportunity in certain places around the world. Um, but again, even if you are biased, you would put the most in the US, which you do on the market cap weighting, instead of putting it all. That's all. Uh, a few things there. One, COVID, logistics, just-in-time inventory, all that seems to be swinging back the other way. Do you think that's even more of an argument for non-US? Um, like I think the um, th there's a lot of things that people talk about. Valuations are the big one. Obviously, I'm a trend guy, so we could obviously get into that too. Um, the, the dollar and currencies, the US dollar is by all the fundamental metrics of purchasing power parity is, is overvalued. Um, and so then it becomes a question of trend and it looks like it's peaked last year, but who knows? Currencies yeah. over time adjust on a real basis. They're, they're fairly stable, but that doesn't mean in a given year they can't move 30%. So um, I, I think the tailwinds are all in place. Now, I would have probably you know said this at various points in the last few years, just historically speaking, people say, no, no, Meb, the U.S. deserves to have a higher valuation. And I say, okay, well, how much? Higher? Just so, so how much and how much do you think it was historically? Because right now it's double, you know, foreign emerging and, uh, and, and less and, and much higher than foreign developed. And they say, well, I don't know, because they, they don't have, I said, well, you know what the historical premium is? It's zero. If you look at the average valuation for foreign uh, ex-U.S., Versus U.S., there's zero. I mean, it's, sorry, it's like it's like 0.5 or one uh, yeah. on on the valuation. It's like 22 versus 23 of the last 40 years. Right, um, but not so there's 45 no difference. versus 20. Yeah, and tying this back in, see, this is totally intentional. I promise. Yes. <laughs> if you go back to Japan in the 80s, right? Japan was the most expensive country in the world, and the U.S. was cheap. And these things just go through go through cycles. So we say this is the biggest opportunity in 40 years. Uh, to diversify globally if you're a U.S. investor. That's my, uh, I think that was about a year ago, I put out a tweet of all these alternatives folks are blending their either trend following or intraday with just pure passive beta, right? Um, putting these together, it's a smoother equity curve, everything looks great. But it was to me, I'm looking through all these products, S&P, 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 right? Totally U.S. focused. So my little, you know, yellow flag went up and like, hey, this is this is time. This is a, a, a commentary on people being having that hindsight bias and having that home country bias and just building this the best they think is how. But and, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with career risk, too. I mean, I think yep. people the trend, the, the trend followers of which, you know, I, I count myself. Um, look had to obviously historical year last year phenomenal year really um just one of the few things that did its job but as you would expect it to do uh you know and the quants the big quants have been talking about this for a long time the opportunity set in traditional 60 40 was atrocious and sure enough you have one of the worst years ever for 60 40 last year um and so people revisit and recall oh yeah you know uh, hey look look what diversifies this traditional portfolio um, so I think, uh, I, I think you have the scenario where most people in the U S that's all they do, right. They do the S and P and, and maybe some bonds scattered in too, which is a shame because, uh, as we know, as students of history, people, people love to buy what they wish they had bought. And, you know, after a, 
a few years of foreign outperformance, that uh, that blend will no longer be U.S. U.S. stocks right. and trend following. It'll be a global diversified uh, equity allocation and trend. And it's never been easier to own foreign, right? Like with all the ETFs and sector weightings, is Correct. it maybe too easy? Like you get confused. It'd be easier just to buy the MSCI or something. You know, I mean, again, I think you run into the same problem. Look, so so going back to, to indexing, indexing meant something very specific 50 years ago. Uh, it meant market cap weighting, and that's it. And the big innovation there, uh, the, the giant neutron bomb that went off in the 70s, you know, John Bogle, Wells Fargo and others, was actually not market cap weighting indexing. That wasn't the innovation. It's what it allowed, which was lower cost exposure to all these equity markets because you don't do anything, right? You just market cap weight, you just buy a bunch of stocks. Theoretically, you just leave them for forever, X corporate actions. Um, and so today in 2023, indexing means something totally different. Um, you could have indexes on really anything. Uh, you know, you could have an index of ski resort companies and charge 3% a year if you wanted to. So, yeah. um, so alternative weighting methodologies we're quant we have 12 etfs you know our flagship sort of equity ones we call shareholder yield you know we weight those differently than market cap weighting so we have us foreign and emerging and those funds you know they're targeting these markets but they're saying hey we don't just want market cap weight um we want stocks that have high cash flows they're treating their shareholders decently through uh, buybacks and dividends. They're trading at low valuations. They're not doing it with a ton of debt and a sprinkling of momentum in. You know, to me, that sounds like a great way to pick companies and stocks. You know, it sounds like a Warren Buffett-esque portfolio. Um, so when you say global, yes, we love global. And on aggregate, you know, the um, the indices top down are more attractive. But here's the interesting part. No one says, the starting point is always S&P, right? But even in the US stock market, the cheap stuff, you know, the value sort of trade versus the expensive um, is totally fine. You you have uh, companies that are sitting under this, you know, these thousands of, look, the trend follower out there loves breath, right? So you have thousands of companies. No one says you have to just invest based on the S&P market cap weighted. And so if you, you can find a lot of opportunity, and if you look at the underlying characteristics of those portfolios, it's single digit PE ratios. It's... Um, you know, valuations and, and the value trade uh, is is arguably top decile in history in the U.S. So 2020, 2021, it was it got into like sort of the single digit best opportunity ever for value investing, even more so than, than 1999. Um and a lot of the expensive stuff has come down in the last year or two. You know, you look around, a lot of these stocks are down 60, 80, 90 percent. Uh, but abroad, it's still like top five percentile for a lot of this cheaper expensive. So it's easy to, to get the market cap weight, broad indices, S&P, EFA, EEM, but really to do the extra little work and to get to, to better constructed portfolios, I think is worth the time. And you can do it now in ETF form uh, for, for low cost. That's the beauty. And um, if you're a taxable investor, um, you know, an efficient tax structure for equities too. Sorry, that was long-winded. No worries. And talk through just real quick how that works on it when you're running an ETF, not you, but if I'm running SPY, they're buying more and more and more of that stock as the market cap goes up to keep pace, right? So it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. 
market cap weighting look I, I think it's a um it was decent innovation and it is the market you just end up with um a portfolio that can have and most of the time it's okay like you know markets as we know most of the time it's in the the fat part of the distribution but at times when it goes crazy like 2020 uh you know you end up with uh companies you're overweighting that are stratospheric valuations and other times it's the opposite on the, uh, the on the other side you get into countries and you can look at the as far as valuations i mean the long history not even long history china great example china's down near some of the lowest valuations ever been you go back a decade 15 years ago it was trading the p ratios like 50 so what, what's the difference nothing it's just what people are willing to pay um you know and and in a world of sustained uh, inflation this was my least popular tweet i think of 2022 at the <laughs> beginning of the year i said you know average valuation for stock markets historically is around p around 18 but in low inflation moderate inflation you get up to around 22 23. so people are willing to pay more for uh stocks when inflation is tame well we don't live in that world currently a lot of these markets around the world have high inflation historically the multiple is not 18 to 22 23 when you get into these high mid high single digit inflation it's down around low teens so multiples like 12 which is 50 percent from here for us stocks now i'm not a doomer i'm not saying that that has to happen but in these high inflationary times historically speaking value the 1970s 1940s has been an excellent place to hide out and whether inflation the expectations it goes is going back down to two three percent we'll see my guess is is not that but isn't um, that just a relative though like you'll just lose less in value you're saying no um well perhaps yeah you, you never know what the exact path is going to be but if you look at the 1970s look at the 40s um value did just fine and um the 70s was a tough time to invest right unless you had some real assets uh unless you were a trend follower you know um and by the way one of our original papers um back when I used to be clean shaven and wore a tie uh <laughs> talked talked about Japan and said look never seen that have, guy yeah. what could you have done in this world and and trend following despite the fact the market was overvalued and went nowhere was um saved your hide right like you you survived a, a lot of the carnage after the peak of the bubble um so you know for the listeners who aren't familiar um with Meb and Cambria, by the way, you know, I, I'm talking a ton about value on a trend following podcast, but our default allocation for all of our asset allocation portfolios uh, is we do roughly half in buy and hold. So that's a mix of global stocks, global bonds, global real assets. So we already have a higher real asset exposure than most, all with tilts towards value um, and some momentum. And then half the allocation is in various trend strategies. And that's higher than any RIA base case allocation of anyone I know in the country. You may know someone more, and I'm excluding specifically trend following, you know, asset management strategies. I'm saying, hey, this is our default allocation for a retail or institutional investor. We call it Trinity. And we, we also have an ETF that does that. Um, so I'm not just a value guy. I promise listeners. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, consider me half value, half, uh, half trend, which there's not too many of us around. You did this great tweet saying, Hey, everyone, there's not a long enough track record, which is when I started 
I did a blog post on that. That's how we started talking a little bit about that this year. But before that, you mentioned your first white papers on trend. Before that, when did you first get introduced to trend? Was it, I know you know Jerry Parker, was it that far back and those kind of guys, or was it just an academic paper? What was your first exposure yeah, to no trend? so i mean i was a biotech guy by by studying uh undergrad and engineer um i worked at a biotech mutual fund moved out west i was actually living in tahoe working for a startup commodity trading advisor and cta meant nothing to me at that point it just yeah. it was a, a, a group of guys that lived in san francisco and um for tax reasons and the fact they loved to ski wanted to open an office in uh you know, Tahoe split California, Nevada. So the Nevada side, right. Um, and so they said, who wants a volunteer to work out of this office? And I was first to raise my hand, right. Wear my ski pants to work some days because market closed yeah. at one, but, but they, but they had worked on their quantitative, you know, old school traders. That was Incline or what was the name? Yeah. Yeah. Incline yeah, yeah, village, yeah. income village as the locals yeah. call it. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I, I was in my twenties and really cutting my teeth and in one of the ideas we had been working on was was codifying some of the you know the the turtle rules just basic stuff and um and often qu quite a bit of variance on that too um and so that was kind of my first exposure to to some of those concepts and uh you know my first and really only academic paper we've written lots of white papers but the experience of going through writing one was enough for me but uh, our, our first one was really based on this trend following concept, but it's saying, how can we make this palatable for the average investor and make it very simple so that people can kind of understand? Because if you say managed futures, people's eyes glaze over, you know, they start to drool a little bit, say, oh, that sounds futures. What does that conjure? Images of leverage, people blowing up, trading houses that are 200 years old, right? Like derivatives, all scary. So I said, how can we write about this in a way that, that resonates with the average investor? And, you know, in terms of even just U.S. stocks, buy and hold person. Um, and, and the takeaway I thought was pretty thoughtful, uh, which was, you know, you can do this in a way that's not prepackaged where you have to trade 100 markets long short. Now, that's a fantastic way to invest. But also you can apply it to like, I mean, look, Dow Theory has been around for 100 years. That's basic trend following. It's been around since the time of Charles running the Wall Street Journal, you know, so it, it's nothing new, but to present it in a way I thought that was just a little simpler, it didn't take much effort. And so kind of cobbled down that cobbled together that paper when I moved down here to LA for a year in 2005, you know, whatever that is, I can't even do the math anymore, 17 years later, um, <laughs> you know, uh, we, uh, that philosophy is still very much a foundational on kind of how we think about markets, you know, which is the big key. Like, what are we all trying to do here? Trying to survive. And if you can't get to the finish line, if you get taken out of the game because it's too volatile, too risky, um, you know, and I got I got ratio the other day on Twitter because I was talking about, you know, someone described, they say, what do you do with your money? I say, ah, oh, I just, it's boring. I just put it all, you know, in, in the S&P. And I said, look, let's be very clear about something. That's not boring. Yeah. You can call it a lot of things. You can call it low cost. You can call it, um, you know, historically has great returns. You can call it a good exposure to U.S. stocks. You, you cannot call something that has declined over 80%, has close to 20 vol, boring, right? And, and it's gone decades going nowhere, um, has gone many decades underperforming bonds. Uh, you know, if you go back to the 1800s, it's gone 60 years underperforming bonds. In 2020, the S&P had gone 40 years underperforming bonds, right? Four decades 
And that's just in the US. Other countries is worse. So I was like, you can't call it boring. You can call it some things. You cannot call it boring. People got so mad at me. I don't know why. Because you have this culture where the S&P has crushed everything for, uh, what is this, 14 years. Um, and so that's all they've known. And they get really irate if you kind of criticize their, you know, the way they go about investing. But you have something that then, you know, could underperform or has a big fat drawdown. And, and to me, quickly... no small part of that is the military industrial complex, quote, air quotes that I call it, that has been pushing that narrative for 40 years of like, yes, this is boring stock exposure, get put all your money into it. Yeah. Um, but so it sounds like you're saying you took, you weren't looking at trend following like a lot of our other guests and be like, cool, I'm looking for outlier trades in silver and cotton and palladium and all these kind of unique markets. It was more of like, cool, this makes me avoid having the 80% drawdown in stocks. I can use some basic trend following techniques to get out and then re-enter when the trend re-emerges the right way. Well, I mean, it started as the former. Okay. And I think, yeah. we, I mean, we even built some systems back in the day. I remember I said, you know, what about, could we do this as an option selling trend following where we're selling straddles and strangles, but we're biasing it in the direction of the trend and all that, you know, we did a million different iterations, but when we had time to put together this paper, uh, I said I wanted to write something that I thought would be um, consumable by the broad public in a way that, you know, was presented, I think, a little bit different. Acad academic and white papers are the worst. Let's be very clear. Yeah. You know, you read an academic paper, the goal for most of the authors is to show you how smart they are. Yeah. And also my number one pet peeve about academic papers is they put all the graphs and tables at the end, like, like you're reading it. Why? And you have to flip yeah, four 50 it pages. Yeah. It's figure one. I can't even understand what you're talking about. I'm like, can you, can we write this in a way that can be presented to the broad and you know, the, the broad investing public that um, is consumable in a way that they can kind of get it. Because again, I've seen so many people, you know, we have over a hundred thousand investors and I talked to, um, so many people in 2010, 14, 16, 18, they say, Meb, you know, I was investing, went through the global financial crisis, seems forever ago. Uh, and I said, I, good, I got out. I couldn't take it anymore. I lost my job. My portfolio was down by half. I couldn't take it anymore. I sold everything and I haven't got back in, you know? And so you missed all this huge upside for many years of, um, you know, the, the emotional behavioral uh, problem of buy and hold investing. And we have a buy and hold ETF, by the way. So let, let me be very clear. The, the big caveat of everything I've said so far, our largest fund is a US stock long only fund. We have a buy and hold ETF. They have their place, but you have to be honest about uh, their pros and cons, their pitfalls too. And, you know, you're looking at a long only buy and hold. You cannot find me a long only buy and hold allocation that doesn't lose at least a quarter at some point and more likely. 50%, yeah. right? Stocks, bonds, real assets, even the most beautiful allocation you can come up with, back-tested, optimized, is, is probably going to lose a third at some point, more likely half. And in some cases, it could lose two thirds. You know, most of the 60, 40s, historically, we, we love our polls on Twitter, if you, if you follow yeah. our polls, but we always ask people things like, you know, how much have uh, bonds declined on a real basis? T-bills, you know, or how much have stocks declined? And, and people are always surprised because it's almost always much more than they expect. And so the they're just reaching the finish line, I think, for many investors on a buy and hold basis is, is really problematic and, and hard to do. So speaking of those 100,000 investors, so it seemed like you were a little bitter of like, hey, 
guys, no one trusts me on this trend following thing. There's track records going back 40 years. Like what's, what's wrong with you people? Um, so do you get that from outright investors or is it with advisors you talk to? Like, who are you hearing that from and, and what's their main point of confusion? Do you think? Well, look, I, I think there's a big education gap when it comes to personal finance in general. We talk a lot about this where we say, um, you know, we don't teach personal finance, even the basics of money in school as money is a language and we should, you know, forget Latin. I took Latin, like, come on, like, let, let's too. teach basics of money. And, um, within that, I mean, look, there, there's some really basic stuff that I think is super important. You do like the pyramid. It's like, Hey, what's the most important thing? It's how much you save and invest in the, and when you decide to invest in the first place. So you do it when you're 20 is way better than when you're 40 or 60 or 80. Um, own, being the owner, the ownership mentality of owning things, I think is more important as long as you do it in a thoughtful way than actually what you invest in. I mean, we were tweeting yesterday about, I said, like, we talk endlessly about, you know, the optimal portfolios and what are some good strategies and what's going on with inflation and what, what to do about gold or all these other things. And I said, we did a poll, I said, you know, how much is your cash account or how much, you know, do you, do you earn on your savings and, and, um, other accounts. Oh, yeah, and most thing. people is it's like zero, like, I don't know, or zero to one. And that's just lazy. You can go get four anywhere right now. Um, and so, I mean, I was like that 4% alpha or Delta is way bigger than, you know, probably what anyway. So going back to this, so talking to investors for the very long time, the older I get, um, the more I start to think about, all right. Um, what narrative can we, so yes, there is the optimal portfolio. And yes, I do think that includes both global buy and hold assets, as well as a huge chunk to trend following. And what that number is and how you do it is less important than whether you decide to include it at all. And I think if you were to ask people, you blindfold them, you go to the, maybe not CalPERS, but you go to a more thoughtful organization that has real money, 10, 100, 500 billion dollars. You blindfold them, you present them an Excel sheet with a bunch of return streams. So you got to put together a portfolio. You can't see what these return streams are. How much is it going to end up being trend following? It's probably going to be 25, 50%, right? Yeah. There's no scenario it's zero. And in some cases, it's probably even more, um, depending on how it's constructed and what you're trying to attach it to. So, um, so yes, there is the question of the optimal portfolio. And I think. I think those two components, what we call Trinity, is is um, to me the optimal portfolio. I would also include some other things that aren't in the global market portfolio, publicly traded. They're harder to invest in, like farmland. We talk a lot about that. Single family housing is a big one. But then the question comes in our world, and this isn't just retail. We love to look down on the retail investors, the little crazy meme stockers trading GameStop and, and whatever it is today, AMC. Um, but institutions are, are horrific at this too, is that you have to come up with narratives that feel warm and cozy. Um, and it feels very awkward, uh, to be different, right. To be out there on your own, um, doing something different and, and that very real career risk plays out. I mean, look at private equity, my God, um, you know, what an amazing business and industry. If you're involved in private equity, you get huge uh, carry on top of that. By the time, if anyone finds out if you're good or not, you're long gone. I mean, it's 10 years later, 15 years later, 20 years later. And so um, this giant charade of private equity, this kind of wink, wink nod of um, 
is a perfect intersection of career risk for uh, for investors and, and institutional allocators. Managed futures in this entire, entire trend following industry, I mean, look, you have another year like 2022 and all of a sudden the money will come flooding back in and people will start to start to allocate a ton of money to it, of course, right after the fact. But uh, you cannot argue to me that to a traditional buy and hold portfolio that there is not a better diversifying strategy than trend following. Like I, you cannot come up with one. I, or if you have listeners send it to me, I haven't seen one. But to me, to a traditional portfolio, and you just look back, not just historically, um, 2008, 2000, 2003, on and on. It's not guaranteed, but yeah. 2022. I, mean, I did a blog example. post showing, I think it was 20 years. I think it was in 2020. Like here's 20 years of the managed futures indices. It was like 5% compound annual rate of return, 18% drawdown, right? It looked not great for some, but the guy's like, oh, why would you ever do it? I'm like, you're missing the whole point. That's a positive carry a positive carry on a diversifier, that's the point that you should be taking away. Not like, oh, it only made 5%. Yeah. Um, and don't quote me on those stats, but it's something along those lines. We'll put it in the show notes. But to me, the more, like, so do you think those institutional guys are consciously saying, I don't want to get invested in this because there's this career risk or is it subconsciously, they don't quite understand it. They don't co quite feel comfortable with it. Like, that's what I want to dig more into. Like, why are they not allocate. And then I would also argue, sorry, I'm throwing 10 things at once to you, but I'd argue that they are allocated. And so kind of want to ask you again, like, what do you think in your mind, what is like a hundred billion, 500 billion, a trillion in managed futures? Like, what's the number you're like, okay, people get it. It's properly allocated to now. Or is that- a I don't know the number, but I do know, I would say like more of the percentages. Um, if you looked yeah. at the average institution, how much they have in trend following, I mean, or managed futures, what, like, Two percent, like yeah. it's like a totally meaningless number. It's it's certainly like not. I'm by it, right, I'm talking to people where it's they're in the market for ten to forty percent. So like I'm the people I'm talking to are the far side of that equation. Right, sure. Like they're the pre-sold. Um, you know, they're they're coming to you because you're having that conversation because they are interested. Um, I don't know any of the two forty percent. So kudos. Uh, maybe some family yeah. offices do hiding out in, in Zug, Switzerland, or or wherever. Uh, but um, but I don't know any uh, listeners. Hit me up. I'd love to talk to you. Um, yeah. Maybe there are. But but on average, if you look at the big institutions, um, it's a rounding error allocation. I mean, even if you round up and the most optimistic five percent. I, there's no chance it is, but I would be shocked that on average the institutions are are rounding up to that. And I'll um, send you our blog post of if you have just five percent, what return do you think you need in a diversifying year like last year in order for that to move menial? It's like 180%, right? Like sure. if you make a few assumptions on your stock and bond returns, you need to make some insane number, which was never going to happen. So it kind of leaves everyone disappointed, like, oh, my five percent didn't do what I thought it was going to do. I'm going to drop it. It's token. I mean, it's like, you know, you see people doing it at, at the low single digit percentages as a way to, to pacify sort of their um, career risk hindsight bias. And they say, oh, well, look, well, we had some trend following. It helped us in, in 2022, um, but not really. Right. And so, you know, I, I think um, I think if you were to say, hey, you know, what at what point if we're sitting down at Crestview Butte or Japan on a chairlift and looking back on this 
and saying, okay, eventually the community sort of gravitated to this place of acceptance, you know, what number, what percentage is that, you know, um, a third, a quarter of an allocation, um, private equity. I mean, look how much private equity is right now as a percentage, yeah, despite the fact the valuations of private equity, which has been the sole driver of private equity performance for decades have gone from like a enterprise value to EBITDA of six to like 15, right? So the, the whole point of this private public arbitrage, which has existed uh, for the better part of history is now gone to the point where many private equity companies are more expensive than the public markets. So the, the vintages starting in the last five, 10 years are going to be stinky. We have a, a private equity replication strategy. We think you can actually do it much better uh, than uh, private equity managers. Um, it's not launched yet because for years I was saying, hey, I don't want to launch this and watch it immediately go down 70%. <laughs> and here we are. If you look at a lot of the private equity VC replication indices, they're down 50 plus percent. Uh, from the peak now, the but public the funds, funds aren't, themselves aren't. That's the rub. They're not marked because they don't have to. Again, wink, wink, nod. Hey, we only mark these once a year, so we're going to kind of smooth this out. Anyway, do you um, think it's a bug or a feature? Like they're doing that on purpose. The investors know they're doing it. So is everyone just like, hey, this is cool? I, I think it's both. Um, I think uh, the feature is: will it get people to behave better? Well, they don't have a choice. Like, I mean, if, if you look at the the recent lockups at the big public uh interval blackstone real estate fund for example yeah um i don't know why any advisor would ever allocate to a fund then gates you for forever again i can see why you might have historically and, and could have been justified but looking back on it now i think uh that you can't possibly justify that sort of allocation um so the feature yes look people are terrible they they one of my twitter polls is how long will you hold an investment that's underperforming before you sell it. And, and the vast majority said zero to three years, which as we know anything about investing, it's, you know, you need to hold, whether it's an active beta, a pure passive beta like US stocks, or it's an active strategy, five, 10, 20 years, zero to three, like forget about it. And so um, the feature of, of actually locking up money, that's fine. The bug is what private equity charges for giving you essentially S&P beta, right? So the problem is is not the, the concept of illiquidity, which is totally fine. The problem is what they charge for it and what they deliver is um, a total mismatch. But to me, they're always clever by half, right? We're the, we're the ones here marking the market and, and struggling through and they're like, hey, look, hey this is easy. Man, you, you, here's, here's my advice to the managed futures industry. You guys need to hire the same lobbyists that the private equity industry has that has kept the, the carried interest hidden away. You know, hey, let's talk about buybacks. Let's, let's you know, let's let's focus on something that's, you know, um, and uh, and keep this giant monster of private equity going. I think, uh, I think there's going to be no asset that disappoints more than private equity over the next 10 years. But yet all the institutions have just been rushing in over the past 10, 20 years uh, into this asset. And it's crazier as I get older and friends and colleagues I know, and they're the ones lending to the private equity and do insanely well, right? They're not even yeah. picking the companies and doing that work. They're just lending the money to the private equity to go do the, the job and they're doing insanely well. So yeah, it, it works all the way down. So you mentioned a third in trend volume. Like to me on this side of the fence, a lot of trend guys were like, hey, whoa, no thanks. 
that'll make it too big and it'll not work anymore. Got any thoughts on that? Most asset alphas around the world, um, if you put enough money into it, it's going to remove the arbitrage. I mean, if you think about value, say, hey, I'm going to invest in Brazilian small cap tech stocks. And, you know, there's an arbitrage there for information, for value. And then you give that person $10 billion, well, it's probably going to close, right? Or, you know, even smaller, more esoteric markets. I'm well, going to buy up. Exhibit A, ARC, right? Yeah. And so um, there is also a sort of reflexive self-reinforcing, you know, money flows issue uh, that pushes asset classes to expensive valuations that is cheap valuations. I, I don't know that the quote alpha of trend following is that, or, or it's just actually a beta of trend following. And to me, the, um, the concept of it, I don't know that more money pollutes that exposure. Uh, but again, I, I'm not sure. I'm not 100% certain in that regard. Um, you could certainly design ideas and concepts that would perform just fine in that reality. But people love spinning their wheels on this topic with passive investing too. You know, yeah, you know I mean, exactly. how much money going into passive and how has this changed things? I mean, um, well, I used to, we used to run trading systems for high net worth in, individuals. And we had a system called Aberration. I don't know if you ever knew it. Um, right. And it looked at 20 different futures markets. When it signaled a trade in platinum, it was a basic like 80 moving average Bollinger mm -hmm. Band breakout system. When it signaled a move in platinum, Platinum would spike one to 5% at the close that day. So someone on the trading floor had the program, was running it, and knew, knowing that was a thinly traded market would put on a few, right? Would start to front run the orders that were going to come in from that popular program. So yeah, like to well, me, I can see- stop, yeah. stop disclosing your rules. So we actually talk about this. Exactly. This is actually an important, the biggest drawback that someone called this, I think it was Rob Arnott, called it the dirty secret of indexing is that the published indexes, market cap weight, Russell 2000 is a great example, is they get front run by traders like yourself or down in the pits or hedge funds every time they rebalance. And that's a very real cost. I mean, think about the S&P when Berkshire came in, right? They announced, Berkshire, hey, Berkshire's coming in. Berkshire runs up, then it goes into the index. Well, that's a real cost to the investor. You don't really see it, but it is a cost. And for some indices, it's not that big of a deal. We're talking 10 basis points, 50 basis points a year. For some of like the buy and hold commodity indices, it can be multiple percentage points per year. And so we often say, because we've been an active index shop, I think the, the, the name at this point is somewhat meaningless. The best thing you can do at this point, I think, is an in-house index, right? So you're at, quote, actively managed. You have the rules, but you're not disclosing them to people. And so it's a lot harder for them to front run. And then, of course, you can do lots of things. Uh, to spread them out. I mean, this is for the longer term crew. So, you know, if you're doing a, a highly active, high frequency, different story. Um, but for the longer term investors, I think there's ways to be really thoughtful about it where it's not going to have any impact. The And so are you, you practice what you preach there inside of yours or not disclosed? We give the broad, like watercolor instruction manual, right? So like, our shareholder yield ETF, we have like a little funnel. We say, okay, this is what we do. We're taking the top 
quintile of stocks that are distributing dividends and net buybacks. Then we run it through a valuation ensemble of valuation metrics like free cash flow, enterprise value to EBITDA. Then we kick out the top most overleveraged companies. We run it through another shareholder yield and, and finally momentum sprinkle on the end. But we're not giving you the exact. So you may right. like be in the right universe of names. Go replicate that. Yeah. Sure, exactly. And so like even like our old um, basic paper, which used for trend following was uh, the 10 month simple moving average. You know, we even show in the paper, uh, it's been so long, but I said, look, does doesn't even matter if you use six month, eight month, 10 month, 12 month. Doesn't matter if you use 200 day, 250 day. Like you're all getting to the same sort of surface area of how these trading systems perform. It doesn't matter if you update it on the beginning of the month, the middle of the month. I mean, it, it, it'll matter in the short term, but over the long yeah. term, we all, we often say use try to use an ensemble of different sing, signals. You could scale in, you could scale out. There's a lot of things you can do. To, but But I really want, and I've always said this about trend following too, you know, I really want to capture the beta of this world. And so people will always email me. They say, Meb, okay, um, I want to add trend following to my portfolio. What fund, what fund singular do you recommend? I say, well, we have one, by the way. It's, it's a strategy called Global Momentum. Um, but I say, they, oh, they say, and then they'll say, okay, I know you can't recommend funds. So just not just one, but, you know, here's, three that I'm considering, you know, what, what's the, what do you think is the best one? And I say, I'm not going to even look at the funds, but hypothetically, why don't you just buy all three or why don't yeah. you just buy them all? The ones that fit the broad criteria, but people hate that advice, right? Because they hate the same thing. They say, Meb, I'm in us stocks. Should I sell them? Or, Hey, my biggest position is Apple. Should I sell it or should I keep it? And I say, why are you thinking in this binary terms? Um, because no matter what happens, you're going to look back and have, right elation oh i was so smart to sell stocks at the peak or you know totally despondent oh my god i can't believe i sold apple and it went up a thousand percent from here i'm so stupid you know the least satisfying thing is to be like you know what i'm gonna sell half or i'm gonna buy these three funds because i'm just gonna capture the average people like to gamble secretly or maybe not so secretly and so to me is like you know, come up with a, a number of funds or strategies that fit the criteria and diversify across all of them. And you guys do this. You track, you know, dozens of uh, these trend following managers going back many decades. I was pestering you the other day when we were tweeting about this. And I said, you know, yeah. you've got some of these track records from like Dunn and others that go back 40 years. And even for a lot of people, they're like, ah, oh, that's not enough. You know, right? It's yeah, like how, right. You're like, what? Yeah. So, um, you know, so I always, the, the, the important question to me is not what people are asking, which is um, which fund is best, which strategy is best, but is, should I have this in the first place? And if you're already thinking about adding that to traditional portfolio, I think like that decision already, that's the big muscle movement. It's not which one it's like, do I include it in the, in the first place? And then when we hire that lobbying group, we'll have them clear this up more. But then that same question happens and people will go, okay, I'm looking at this managed futures program and this one and this one. Like, hold on, your bucket A there is managed futures, but it's not trend following. It mm -hmm. right, it could be doing discretionary hog yeah. trading or option sure. selling or something as weird. And so that trips up a lot of people of like, well, that didn't perform last year. I'm not gonna look at that. So just public service announcement, beware what's on the cover with managed futures doesn't necessarily mean trend. Yeah. Can you talk about what it it's but it's only doing equities or it also sure. has so if if you were to ask me, say Meb. Um, what's your desert island strategy? So two questions. One, 
Matt, what strategy do you think is going to do the best for the next decade? I mean, I think emerging market deep value stocks are um, in for, uh, to me, the best compounding opportunity for the next decade, just pure compounding, ignore volatility, ignore drawdowns. We close our eyes. We do this podcast. We do this, this uh, hologram live presentation in 2033. Yeah. God, I can't even say it. Um, and we look back, say, Meb, what, what, you know, I think emerging market stocks point 2022, 2023, 2033, simple compound returns. I think emerging market shareholder yield style strategy. But if you were to say, Meb, what is your desert island strategy? You have to survive. So drawdowns matter. Staying in the game matters. Um, what do you do? And to me, to, that's always been trend following. And it's a separate question if you say, Meb, trend following as your entire portfolio or trend following as a diversifier to your buy and hold portfolio. Hmm. Because trend following as your entire portfolio to me- Looks different. Long, flat, right? It looks different to me than diversifying a traditional portfolio, which would be more long, short. You know, the shorting part is hard. It adds volatility to me, but there's no better diversifier. If you look back last year, right? I mean, one of the major performance drivers was <clears throat> all the trend followers were short fixed income and bonds. Yeah. And you have these like terrible uh, stock bond performing year, but like what else diversifies be, being short rates going from zero to 4%, like amazing world-class trade. Um, but uh, long flat to me um, is a low volatility, low drawdown. Uh, the, the thing about long short is you have twice as many chances to be wrong, right? <laughs> so it's so a long yeah. flat. Our, our global momentum strategy, it looks at roughly, so we, we have um, three allocation uh, ETF strategies. One is buy and hold, does nothing, buys uh, global stocks, bonds, real assets, broadly similar to the global market portfolio with value tilts, super low cost. On the opposite end, it's crazy cousin, targets the same assets. So roughly 50, what we consider to be asset classes, sub-asset classes, industries, sectors. Um, it sorts based on just like a normal intermediate term momentum uh, of various time frames, but only owns them. So it takes a top, um, what is it, top third, but only if they're above their long term trend, excuse me, quarter, only if they're above their long term trend. So it can be heavily concentrated in stocks, in real estate, in commodities, in bonds. And so right now, not surprising, um, last year it was heavy risk off in. Um, you know, the rare times when kind of everything is going down. 08 was really the last time I think we saw that COVID very briefly. Yeah. Um, but over the final quarter of last year into this year, it really started allocating quite a bit to equities, particularly foreign equities. Um, and then a smattering of precious metals, who knows where those are going to go. Uh, you know, obviously nothing in, in fixed income, um, at this point, but um, and, and earlier in the year, last year, it had a lot in other commodities uh, as well. So it um, that exposure um, is an aggressive version of really our original paper um, 15, 17 years ago now. So it combines momentum and trend. And so then in the middle of that is what we call that trinity, where you've got half and buy and hold, half and trend. And to me, from an individual standpoint, as well as an institution this is why the narrative works so well is, and you could do COVID as an example, but even this past year, I mean, 2022, terrible year for traditional buy and hold. You say, thank God for trend following, you know, that half of your portfolio, 2023, uh, we're only, you know, a month in, 
maybe not so much two months in, but you said, oh, thank God I buy and hold because everything is ripping right back up, you know, or same as in COVID. Beginning of COVID, zombie apocalypse, everything going straight down, the world's ending. Thank God for trend following. And then you balance, you say, oh my God, well, thank God I buy and hold because these things just ripped. So the, the right. di- yin-yang diversification of those two, you end up a place in the middle that I think is a lot more palatable. Right, and then everyone rushed into ball and tail protection strategies for mm-hmm. in 22 and then they didn't work in 22 because it was the second responder not the first responder always something give us the uh kind of etf and ria landscape as you see it today what's the same what's changing i know that could be a whole pot yeah two two big part. different yeah. questions you know i i gave a talk um at the beginning of COVID um, in Jackson Hole uh, in, a, in a little uh, conference room looking out over the mountain. And I said, you know, most investors don't realize this yet, uh, or they do, and they're just willing to ride out their sort of um, closet index fees, like these old school mutual fund managers that still charge one, one and a half, two percent for S&P 500 exposure, basically. Um, I said that the world has changed. You can buy a globally diversified portfolio of market cap weight from Vanguard for essentially zero. It's like yeah. three basis points. And in that world, it's tax efficient. Um, if you're going to be doing something different, if you're going to be, quote, an active or alpha generator, like you better be pretty weird, concentrated and different, or you're just not going to survive. Like that 50, 100, 150 basis point fee like you need to do something to justify that. And I said, first of all, that's the best time ever to be an investor. Amazing opportunity set. We have um, limitless choice, low cost, tax efficient vehicles. And I said in Barron's at one point, I said, you know, ETFs are going to take over the mutual fund industry. And everyone laughed. Um, mm-hmm. And I said, you know, for all the reasons, lower cost, tax efficient, yada, yada. What I didn't foresee was that mutual funds were going to start to convert. You know, so DFA did this with like 40 billion of assets, but these, um, this really is applying to uh, equities, specifically to equities, because it's a, we estimate about a 70 basis point structural tax advantage of being in the ETF wrapper versus mutual fund. If you're in 401k, it doesn't matter. If it's in your IRA, it doesn't matter. If it's bonds, it doesn't really matter. Managed futures doesn't really matter. For equities, it really, really matters. But that's the biggest chunk, right? The active space. Um, and so you're seeing a lot of these conversions. So if you'd say, Meb, what's what's going on in the ETF space? Well, you know, um, as far as us specifically, look, we have 12 funds. We're probably going to launch about another half dozen dozen in the next year or two. Um, you say, why in the world? How is there's ten, tens of thousands of funds out there? How are you guys possibly, you know, why does the world need any more funds? My God, man. Yeah. Um, but we keep seeing opportunities that are open sort of blue ocean opportunities where there's either a strategy doesn't exist or we think we can do it much better or much cheaper. Um, subjective, of course, but we, we like to think we can. So we, we still think there's a lot of opportunity. Um, RA space, you know, I think it's evolved the way we've kind of talked about over the last five, 10 years. I mean, the, the automated solutions we think are incredible. Um, they're sort of a commodity, which is why Vanguard has been, you know, by far the biggest player there. Uh, a lot of the digital offerings we think are fantastic. I mean, we've used Betterment uh, as a partner you know, they have some very key, um, going back to our cash management solution earlier, 
you know, they, they can sweep you into a 4% plus cash account. Um, you know, and, and to me, that's, that's, you want a fiduciary. If you're, if you're an investor, you want a fiduciary partner. And so, um, you know, I think financial advice will still exist. Uh, I think, you know, the ones that charge a half or a percent, you know, need to justify it, not with asset management, but rather with, you know, wills, trusts, insurance, behavioral coaching, all the other value added activities a financial advisor should be doing in the first place. Golf, skiing. Golf. Hey man, look, if you can, you can get on uh, Riviera or uh, LA country club or wherever, like that's a non-trivial yeah. benefit. And I say yeah. that totally seriously. Um yeah. Any, anyway, I, I think it's um, all the AI te technology will um, become a huge tool the same way email was, Zoom is, right? It's going to augment the capabilities of advisors. They're not going away. I think there will be fee compression, particularly for the ones that don't do anything, right? <laughs> but that applies to the, maybe there's like a chart you can do of S&P 500, you know, S&P 500 funds where you can buy it for like three basis points, but there's ones out there that track the S&P that charge 10, 20, 50, 70, 100. And my favorite example is, um, who's it? I, I shares who has IFA ETF and they have an exact clone of it. And I forget the symbol. And one charges like triple the cost. And notice they're not like closing the one that's triple the cost. Right. They're right. just quietly saying, okay, well, this money's stranded. And it's the exact same index. Um, and that is that people have died or lazy or no I, th I think like it's like uh you know buffett says like don't ask a barber if you need a haircut like people have incentives that are tied to revenue and there's nothing harder than to say i'm going to chop off an arm and say yeah. you know we're, we're going to get rid of this uh because it's the right thing to do and so no, i'm talking really the investors still having their money there they're just asleep yeah I, I think it's um it's money tends to get stuck you know how many listeners do you have a bank of america account that's yielding three basis points right. like you're just too uh -huh. lazy to move it that's why and so people they buy funds those funds there's a great stat it's like the average financial advisor that's been in business for 20 plus years owns something like 200 mutual funds across their client book and like how can you possibly have researched 200 mutual funds but what happens is they get sold them they buy them they forget about them and for the Anytime a, an advisor is talking to a client and wants to buy or sell something, that creates a friction fracture point, right? Wait, okay. why are we selling this? Oh, it's because it's an S&P 500 fund that charges 75 basis points. Why didn't you sell this five years ago? Why yeah, didn't why you didn't sell you this in 97 when SPY came out? So you mean I've been telling I've been paying 60 extra basis points when I didn't need to? Or are you going to refund me that? Right. So that's just quiet. Just leave it there. Um, yeah. But unfortunately, that's you know that's you want you want you want good fiduciary partners. That's the big takeaway. three quick things on farmland or space that you can tell me that I don't know. You know, so we did a, um, we've done a couple podcast series where, you know, it's, it's Meb's interest and whether anyone else likes it or not, but who doesn't love space? I mean, come on. Right. Um, no, I also have a five-year-old. Yeah. It's awesome. I come from aeronautics background. My, my brother and my father, both aerospace engineers. So it's always been close to home, but, um, I, I do a lot of startup investing. And so for me, this is a lot of fun. Uh, I think, you know, going back to talking about true alpha um, listeners, we got we need another hour, but go Google, Google QSBS and talk about tax incentives. If you're investing in angel investor in companies that have less than a 50 million market cap, it's arguably in my mind, 
and this is Obama era legislation, I think the most impactful tax legislation uh, that has been incentivizing entrepreneurs and people funding entrepreneurs this country's ever seen. And what it does is if you invest in a company that's sub 50 market cap, so essentially a startup, um, you know, your gains uh, are tax free and it's capped at like 10 million or 10 times the investment, whichever is greater. So um, incredible opportunity. So I've invested in over 350 companies at this point uh, over the past decade in the, in the startup world. And partially for, and, and you can find um, some more information if you Google Journey to 100X article we wrote on it, listeners. And, um, but one of the reasons I did it, I said, look, my goal is to, if I break even, great. I'm going to consider this tuition. If I match the S&P gravy, because I'll be doing it tax-free and anything above that, amazing. But the real reason I'm doing it is, is for education and to, I've reviewed over 10,000 pitch decks at this point, um, but you pick up companies and ideas that not only you can apply to your own life, your own company, um, but also um, start to get some signals you may not see in traditional media or elsewhere. And it's so much fun because what's better than talking to a passionate entrepreneur? Like it's the best yeah. thing in the world, a new idea. But one of the things we started picking up on, I'll have to look it up if it was three, five years ago, whatever it was, we said, there's an inflection point because when you think of space, you think of, Boeing, Lockheed, these giant companies, right? But there started to become an inflection point. And SpaceX is obviously one that that really comes to mind. But um, where you don't need ten billion of capital to really start to develop the next generation of satellites, electronics, whatever. So the startups were actually starting to really innovate here. And we, so we did a whole series of startup space investing, and there's been some pretty incredible. Um, successes there and i think there will continue to be the second series we did was on africa which uh again is a very similar situation for different reasons but um like if you look at africa etfs there's like one and it's mm -hmm. like all south africa right so the signal which is there's a ton of innovation and success happening at the private startup level that's going to flow through to the public markets over the next decade eventually um so those are two areas I think are, are super interesting. Um, farmland is like the opposite end. It's like the most boring, but ideal asset class in that it doesn't really correlate to anything. You know, if you got a blueberry farm in Oregon, a wheat farm in Kansas, a timber farm uh, on the East Coast, very different dynamics of what's going on. And to a traditional portfolio, um, it's a wonderful asset class. Uh, it's hard to allocate to. Um, there's some online platforms that have started uh, sprouting up like Acre Trader. There's private funds. So we've done, I don't know, 10, 20, 30 podcasts on the topic. Um, <clears throat> again, it's informed by my personal experience. I come from a, a farming family uh, and y'all's part of the world is is probably much more, um, you know, uh, involved in that uh, exposure as, as others. But um, to me, uh, as a Again, like trend following as a true diversifier, those those are like my one two to a traditional yeah. portfolio. We're uh, not making is, any more of it is the basic premise. That's right. The um, and then I want you to ask one of these space guys once. They're like, "Oh, we're going to mine these asteroids. They have all these minerals that we need." I'm like, "Okay, but it's worth it when the price of gold is two thousand dollars." But now, if you bring ten times the amount of gold on Earth back to Earth, guess what the price of gold is going to do? So a lot of that math doesn't uh, quite work out for me when yeah. I start thinking about that. But well, there's but a lot of it, a lot of the um innovation is um 
is I think is a lot closer than we think. If you look at um, one of the companies we did was Axiom, which is building commercial space station to replace uh, the International Space Station. First, it's going to kind of attach and then do its own. Um, that company, it's not like 2040. Like this is going to be happening in the next five uh, years. And so it's like a really cool development where I think a lot of the SpaceX innovation with the, the launches um, uh, accelerating and the size, it's going to happen, I think, a lot quicker than, than people expect. Uh, what about getting us to light speed? I think it's some big, huge magnetic accelerator out there, like between us and the moon. You just yeah, turn on all those the old the old, uh, the old Jodie Foster movie. There, there was there's one company, and one of the problems. I mean, like one of my biggest misses is I I turned down I mean past um, Boom Supersonic, which is like mm. the version two of the Concorde. Yeah. And, you know, so to me, I, I struggle with the really hard capital intensive ones and there's there and, and of course they're hugely successful and they're building all these planes for everyone but another one is a company that says hey we're going to try to instead of um you know the traditional rocket launch we're going to um uh, have a setup where it's just going to spin the rockets really fast and fling them out you know to and, and they like did the math on like what it's going to cost and how it's going to work and i'm blanking on the name of the company and i was like that's crazy you know, right. how is that going? And then I, you know, I didn't invest, but like it's the same thing. It's like, that's crazy. Who's going to get into a car driven by a random person and drive you someplace? Like who would invest yeah. in that? Who would go stay in someone's house? They're just going to oh. rent you out a bedroom of their house, like for a night, like Airbnb, Uber, like two of the biggest, biggest yeah. successes. Who's going to sit in a car that drives itself? Yeah, exactly. All right, last bit. I need your... Uh... Mount Rushmore, top four ski mountains, ski resorts. Um, so um, this is complicated, um, <laughs> you know, because because part I tried part, to give you a Mount Rushmore like Bill Simmons, right? So you don't have part, to pick part, just one would be even harder. Part of it in my head is like if if you include the town. So, mm, yeah, um, if you include the town and the community, like uh, I love the traditional Colorado um, Crested Butte, Telluride, Steamboat. To me, you're yeah. like, they're hard to get to, so you don't get as many people. Um, authentic Western town, like the Main Street, like the, um, just yeah, the, the old school. Saloonish style, kind of bars. Right. Yeah. You know, I grew up going to Winter Park. I got a lot of scars, sutures on my body from Winter Park. That's always a, a soft spot. J Japan to me is unlike anything else. Um, you know, you get the cultural exposure as well as, just um, the consistency and the, and the trouble, as you know, like you're trying to plan a ski trip. I just drove back eight and a half hours from Mammoth last night. Um, snow, mother nature is fickle. And so like, hey, let's go to Europe this year. Well, it's a bunch of grass no, and dirt. And so then you're you it's hard. But Japan, more than anywhere, the consistency um, of, of the snow is really unlike anywhere else. So um, that to me still is that's probably number one. And you icon or epic? I think used to be sponsored by Icon Pass, right? This is this is another benefit of being an international macro investor. The yen, some of the highest levels it's ever been. And so the cost uh for Americans is much lower than it has been over the past decade. I am icon. Uh they actually used to sponsor our podcast. Um, That's what I was saying, yeah. and uh but but uh, so did Mountain Collective. So we're we're uh fans of all the passes, but um you know, in Japan, I was laughing because we were going up to some of these tiny resorts and, um, you know, lift tickets for like 50 bucks 
And I was like, some of these places in the U.S. now are well yeah, north of two hundred dollars, two forty or something. Yeah, I like it's just it's. Uh, I don't. And know. I was we were in Sun Valley over President's Day weekend. There's actually some pushback against the passes there. Of like, yeah. we tried Epic, it was way too crowded. We tried sure. this. I mean, crowded. some of those lines from Vale, you see those pictures where it's just like. Yeah. A thousand people like that's literally my nightmare like oh my god it looks yeah. so terrible i, I would rather Bales just sit in, hot, in, my, I'd rather sit in the hot tub and drink hot chocolate underwater mount rushmore um but do you think those passes are good for the industry or or indifferent um help some kind of hedge right and get income when yeah, there is no snow i don't know i don't know I, yeah i i think it's um i think it's a mixed bag but um i you know i, I think it's probably better than the alternative yeah Awesome. We'll let you go. We'll leave it there. We can, we'll do another whole podcast on whether climate change is going to ruin a bunch of these beautiful mountains, but. Well, my friend, it's just going to change it. We'll just be skiing and, uh, you know, I don't know where. Yeah. <laughs> thanks, so, thanks so much for having me. All right, man. It's been fun. We'll uh, talk to you soon. All right. Skiing, space, farmland, and trend. That was fun. Thanks to Med Faber. Thanks to our sponsor, RCM, and their trend white paper. And thanks to Jeff Berger, our producer behind the scenes, making up for me for getting used the fancy microphone. Uh, that's it for the pod this week. We'll see you next week with Mike Green. Peace. You've been listening to The Derivative. Links from this episode will be in the episode description of this channel. Follow us on Twitter at RCM Alts and visit our website to read our blog or subscribe to our newsletter at rcmalts.com. If you liked our show, introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe. And be sure to leave comments. We'd love to hear from you. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as legal, business, investment, or tax advice. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of RCM Alternatives, their affiliates, or companies featured. Due to industry regulations, participants on this podcast are instructed not to make specific trade recommendations nor reference past or potential profits, and listeners are reminded that managed futures, commodity trading, and other alternative investments are complex and carry a risk of substantial losses. As such, they are not suitable for all investors.